0: hey greg hey andrew it's january 10th 2018 what are you into
1: well i would like to say that i have been continuing to read utopia a novel of terrible optimism by david nickel and playing assassin's creed origins um which is a really fun game um much better than it had any right to be, given that it's from the Assassin's Creed series, which hasn't been great lately. But anyway, it's really, really good. I'd like to say I've been playing a lot of that. But really what I've been doing is obsessing over um, the book that America is obsessing over, The Fire and the Fury, which is the uh, you know first year of Donald Trump's White House, Tell All. Um, because, man, that is a train wreck uh, none of us can look away from. Um, the Good Place uh, is back from its mid season hiatus and the most recent episode has been fantastic. So, um, so that's good. I'm looking forward to, um, to that season continuing. (coughs) And we had some friends over for the the new year and we ended up rewatching all of big mouth on Netflix. So, you know, I, I, watch that for a second time. And like most great TV shows, it gets better on the second viewing because there's so much, I mean, there's just so many jokes and references and callbacks and foreshadowing and all those great things that, you know, you watch a show like this for, and you can't catch it all in one viewing. So watching it again was a, was a delight.
0: I would expect that. Cause as the show went on, I started realizing how much they were referencing past things. I'm like, I bet they do this the other way around too. Yeah. And I, I need to get back into the good place. we we watched the first episode of the new season and then I think Shay fell asleep and you ever get in that situation with your streaming other, where like you get off sync and then you <laughs> never get back on sync and you never get to watch anything. Yeah. It's frustrating.
1: That is a, a very modern romance kind of, <laughs> kind of problem of we're, we're off sync on a Netflix
0: show. <laughs> first world problem, right?
1: Yeah, you know, I think the advice I can give for that and for all of you out there who tune into this for your modern technological romance advice um, is you just got to power through. You just have to say, like, look, does that mean I'm watching an episode twice or does that mean we finish this at different times? And you just have to make that pack and just tear off the band aid because there's no way to. Because what will end up happening is neither of you will watch the rest of The Good Place.
0: And you just end up watching American Dad reruns on Hulu. Yeah. Uh, or as we're currently doing house hunters. Ugh. Oh God. Um, so yeah, no, I need, I was like, usually I have a list. I'm like, these are the shows that you need to like rewatch the episode that you fell asleep for. So we can continue <laughs> watching them. <laughs> so and like, otherwise, yeah, we just sit in limbo. I mean, we're still, or the whole, the whole, like, yeah, I'm not really in the mood to watch that tonight. It's like, Oh my God, can we just watch it please?
1: <laughs> it almost feels like you should set. There's some kind of like relationship statute of limitations. Like there's kind of an unspoken, well, I wouldn't even call it an unspoken rule. Cause I'm really the only one who believes it's a rule. But like if you buy some like food, like let's say some chips or some candy that you kind of buy for yourself and it sits in the pantry for more than a week, like that, that's now public property and I'm eating those Doritos. Like, so I feel like there should be a similar statute of limitations on a TV show. Like I will give you, you have one week to catch up and then all bets are off.
0: Yep. Yep. You know, like, that's why, like, we haven't even watched, we're like a season, like, the basic equivalent of a se- more than a season behind on The Walking Dead, because we just never got back in sync with it, so, which maybe is not that big of a loss at this point, but. Yeah. So, tonight, we have a topic to talk about. Yes, we do. And that topic is, uh, what's in a character?
1: <laughs> I don't know, bones and blood and dinner.
0: I mean, it depends on the character, I guess. You could be playing like, you know, an alien. Okay, so what we're going to talk about is RPG, like tabletop RPG character creation. Think of this as sort of the next episode in in the series that began with us having Roger on the show and talking about what is, you know, tabletop RPG playing and Dungeons & Dragons and these type of things and why it matters and why it's fun. So we're going to talk about character creation, which is essentially the first step in most D&D campaigns.
1: Yes. And I think for the purposes of this conversation, we're probably going to focus mainly on the way things work in D&D or Pathfinder or, you know, the similar kinds of games, just because it's kind of the archetype for how this is done in almost every other system. Um, And generally, it's kind of the way it works in most other systems too. Um, So to get that out of the way for people who know a lot about RPG character creation. But I think we should start by giving a little bit of explaining how this works for folks who maybe have never rolled up a character sheet.
0: Right. So I think it's probably something that sometimes like is a big stereotype for Dungeons and Dragons or RPGs where you think of this like really complicated character sheet that includes all these statistics and lists of equipment and spells and all these things. And like, that is true sometimes uh although i think a lot of systems are trying to move away from that because it is a sort of a burden of knowledge and a hurdle that a lot of people kind of instantly turns them off because it is the first thing that you do now some dungeon master game masters will give you characters oftentimes you know first people's first introduction is like here's a character to play because character creation can be a little bit intense uh however usually what you do in most times is that you know you the maybe uh, your dm says Hey, uh, I have an idea for a campaign, you know, with you and whoever else. And it's going to be this kind of campaign. Think of a character. And really, you know, maybe they have some parameters like, oh, it's going to be a low magic campaign or, oh, it's going to be, you know, this type of thing. And there's some racial restrictions or some class restrictions. But usually you can kind of pick, you know, you have a whole universe open to you of the kind of character you want to create. So the question I'm going to talk about is, like, how do you do that?
1: Right. So, just from a technical aspect, um, uh, an RPG character in a, in, a, in a tabletop setting is built up of a sheet of stats. Um, and in Dungeons and Dragons, correct me if I'm if I'm missing one. Uh, there is six main is it six right. Yep. Yep. Six main stats: strength, dexterity constitution, which is kind of like general physical health, wisdom, intelligence and charisma. And every character has some score in each one of those uh, stats. and depending on how you know how you you know you can have a high intelligence character that is low strength and you can imagine what that is like or a low um, low wisdom but uh, high dexterity, you know, Um, really, really good with their hands, but get themselves into trouble pretty easily. Um, or you could have low intelligence, high charisma, like the president. Um, but the idea is that these stats will dictate, um, and then they get extrapolated out into other things like your knowledge of history or your ability to bluff these things where they kind of get, you know, further and further Abstract it out so that when the time comes to for something to happen in the game world um, you will do a die roll against those stats and Essentially if you have a high wisdom score, you will do better on uh, die rolls that you know require You know for an action that requires a lot of wisdom Um, for example Mm, seeing through a, a character they're lying and maybe you do a wisdom roll to see if you see through their lie. Um And every system and every, I mean, even every campaign, DMs have a little bit of freedom in figuring out how, when you start your character, how you set up these stats. But generally the systems are designed so that you don't end up with a character who is, you know, has high stats in all six buckets. You don't want this kind of perfect man who is you know, ideally, you know, they're the smartest and the best looking and the strongest and the fastest um, and the healthiest. You want to give it some texture. So sometimes, and in a lot of, and I think actually in original D&D, these stats were essentially randomized. Mm-hmm. So you would go through a, as you're generating your character, go through a, a die roll and, you know, assign the score, the randomized score from the die roll becomes your stat in a certain bucket. And you have a little bit of freedom to say, oh, well, I want a little bit more here, a little bit more there. Other times you might have a pool of kind of points and you assign them into the different buckets, but it limits you. Um, so you could tr- try to be a jack of all trades, but it's going to be pretty low in each one. Or you could try to max out one stat at the expense of another. Um But that's the kind of raw material that your character is made up of. And then as you progress through the game, you'll have opportunities to increase certain stats, learn new skills. Um, But in addition to the stats, you also get uh, a race. So human, elf, dwarf, and a whole slew of others that come with their own little bonuses and quirks. Um, And a class. So fighter, wizard, wizard. Mm, thief, oh, I, rogue, I guess. Sorry, rogue. <laughs> um, and any number of kind of general, like, jobs, kind of, that you start the game with that will also influence your stats a little bit and, um, also give you some new skills and abilities and those sorts of things. Um, but what we've started to see now, I think, especially more in, um, more recent editions of Dungeons and Dragons is, while there is that huge focus on all your stats that are kind of just the physical de- description of your character, so to speak, um, they've started to put more seriousness on the, who the character is. Um, what is their personality? What is their history? What are their goals and ideals mm-hmm. that extend a little bit beyond, you know, just the kind of, you know, how strong are they? How fast are they? um, and i think in the past this was a little bit more open to just you as the player had to figure out in your head what your character's personality was and just kind of play to that in the game whereas now they're incorporating systems like um i think it's called like 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 they it's like a flaw and it's basically a statement you make and i think the agreement with the with the um dm is that I'm going to hold you to that. If you're in a situation where your flaw is going to come into play, you have to act according to that. So your flaw might be something like, um, I'm deathly afraid of spiders, which means if the, if you encounter a spider in the game, your character has to run away. Like you, you don't get a choice in the matter. Um, and that's an interesting choice, I think, on the, on the half of the, behalf of the game makers to try and code of codify more of the personality and the flaws and the personal history. And as I was reading through the fifth edition player's guide, because of course I was, um, they even have systems in place where if you don't feel like inventing those things for your character, you can randomize those as well. Like it's like roll a, a D six. That's a six sided die for you jocks out there. Um, and based on what your result, here's a table of things. And one of them is like, you know, your flaw might be you're afraid of this or your flaw might be um, you're, you're exceptionally gullible when, you know, um, when, the, when the other person is attractive. Um, and they, they have this way of basically totally randomizing the creation of a, of a character. And I think this idea of what is randomized versus what is intentional Uh, I think we're going to dig into that a little bit deeper. But those are the basics of what we say. When you're creating a character, you're building up these stats, um, but you're also developing a backstory. And the game is going to force you to make some decisions about the backstory, but your DM is also going to encourage you to kind of invent a history for your character. Um, Try to develop a personality for them that you will then play to in the game. And they'll also try to maybe encourage you to, you know come up with a personality that's going to be interesting alongside some of the other characters in the game but does that cover off on the basics for somebody who's never done this before do you think
0: yeah i'd say that that covers it all you know that all kind of melts together in one big picture except for one thing you left out which is the ever classic ever favorite alignment oh yeah well you know you probably at this point if you're on the internet you've probably seen some sort of meme Uh, oftentimes they're related to some character or universe or something like this, where it has, it's a nine quadrant, uh, field or or picture that has, you know, the two axes, which is the lawful to chaotic axis, um, lawful, neutral or chaotic. And then the good evil axis, which axis which is, uh, good neutral evil. So that makes nine potential quadrants for combinations of things like lawful, good or chaotic, good or neutral evil. And these, you know, this is a tough, it's it's basically trying to codify your more morality in a lot of ways or the way you view the world. Um, and there are things in the game that, you know, use alignment as a mechanic as opposed to just a guiding force for your character. So, for example, um, I'm not sure if all, I'm assuming some of this sticks around for the new, the most edition of Dungeons & Dragons, but, you know, there's certain things like, your character like hates the law and order and you get a plus one, you know, this spells plus one against beings that are, that have a lawful alignment of any kind, things like that. Um, but it's also designed to try and give the DM and you a guiding force of like, when it comes to decision-making and things, what alignment are you? How would you decide to uh, act in a situation? So some classic examples of like archetypes of, alignments, you know, people's like, well, how, how do you define an alignment? It's usually best done, you know, there's descriptions of them in the handbook and things of the kind of person that would be this, but, uh, something like the Joker is chaotic evil. He's evil, obviously. And he just wants chaos, right? Like he doesn't really have a motive or a goal. It's just to watch the world burn, which, you know, has pros and cons from a story perspective and these things we've mentioned before. Where someone, you know, on the other end of the evil spectrum, like a lawful evil, is usually the one we might consider someone who is, like, the villain that's the hero of their own story. Like, they they have a system in mind that they want to have in place because they think it makes a better world and they're willing to do anything to get it. Those type of things. And there's sort of uh, also some of these things sort of wrap around each other sometimes. Like, someone can be so lawful good that they end up kind of being a little lawful evil <laughs> and situations like that.
1: So, I, I like to think of the good evil... Axis as an axis of kind of self-interest. yeah, so you're you're true, you know, you're when you go to, you know a f- the full evil side, this is a this is a character who only cares about themselves. and the true good side, all the way on that side, is a person who um genuinely struggles to act selfishly., um, you know, uh, you know, the kind of person who who, you know, Um, would starve to death so that other people could eat. Um, And where do you fall on that axis? And then lawful versus chaotic is more of just how important to you is order. Um, Because I think in older conceptions of this, of the lawful chaotic axis was really more literal. Like, do you believe in the law or not? Whereas the more modern interpretation is lawful means um, you believe in order and structure it might be the order and structure of the kingdom, or it might be the order and or it might be the order and structure that, you know, would be in place if you were king. Like I believe that there's a hierarchy, um, and I believe in authority, it's just I'm the authority. <laughs> um Right. The classic chaotic. example
0: is like Batman, right? Like is Batman lawful good or chaotic good? <laughs> um hmm because he has a very strict code and like rule and order of the world right but also disregards what many people right. would consider the general ruling authority
1: and i would i would put him in the lawful good because he because there are two classes of people in the world for him there are criminals and there are non-criminals and um you know there there's not a lot of gray area for batman um but they are criminals according to his code because truthfully in terms of the laws of Gotham City Bruce Wayne is breaking them all the time you can't just go beat people up cuz you cuz you think they're a burglar um or because they wear a funny hat um so yeah i think that and and your dm will ask you to kind of pick that and that kind of is a little bit of the root of your personality and your their their general uh your character's kind of orientation towards the world around them, how they orient towards other people and how they orient towards structure versus chaos.
0: Right. So all these things sort of layer on top of each other. And as Greg said, there's been a lot more, you know, the fifth edition, the newest edition of Dungeons and Dragons has done a lot to um, put a couple more mechanics in place surrounding these things. And in the past, it was sort of up to the DM to, you know, decide if a character was the alignment they say they are or acting as they are. You know, I've had many characters where I started off thinking they were going to be neutral good, but then midway through the campaign, you know, the DM goes, "Dude, you're not neutral good. You're chaotic good. Like change your alignment," and you know that has effects. And certain classes have to be certain alignments, so there's like mechanical things that go on there. But uh, I think you know we we wanted to explain the mechanics of it all, but then sort of get into the meta discussion of like how this, how the mechanics inform your character, but also When you kind of break free of some of the mechanics and do some of the extra work, which is, which before is extra now is becoming a little more required of who is your character and why do we care? Because for a long time, many Dungeons and Dragons groups, they're murder hobos. They just go from place to place, (laughs) killing stuff and taking their things and they don't have roots or, you know, they're just adventurers and it's like, yay, we're adventurers. But it's like, yeah, all you do is run around and take people's stuff. Uh, And some, you know, there's still nothing wrong with running a campaign that way, but I think that in the newer systems, conditions of systems are realizing that what maybe some of like the more hardcore Dungeons and Dragons RPG players like is the fact that you, it is a role-playing game. You're not just, because if you just want to run around and kill things, there's, there's a Call of Duty, there's Assassin's Creed, you know, it, it's not the point necessarily. And, you know, you, this is a hard thing because you never want to sort of like disregard the style of one play group stuff because that's not. You know it's a it's an open environment this is the point of it you can make it what you want it to be it's collaborative storytelling collaborative gaming but i think a lot of the companies are real you know e- engaging with the people that want to have a role-playing experience beyond just i hit it i take it stuff so for me that's why you know i want to talk about characters was because they're the core for me of tabletop rpgs because without if you remove the character experience and not just the statistical experience because you make characters in games like Skyrim or whatever else and you a lot of them use are you know, the character systems in those things are based on Dungeons and Dragons and these type of things, you know, even some games, you even see the dice rolling. I remember making a character in Knights of the Republic. And when you were making your character, you saw the little dice rolling in the bottom of the corner. I'm like, why is that there? Like, <laughs> <it's> <laughs> so, so unnecessary. So you don't use dice the rest of the game. But uh, but otherwise, you know, you plot and equipment and combat and all that jazz is fun and it's part of the experience but you can get all that in another in a board game or there's a lot of like D D light board games usually under the Dungeons and dragons banner or different things where you kind of get given a character and it's more of like a board game as opposed to the more creative expansive way a, a traditional tabletop rpg is and the character you choose to create and to play defines your entire experience i think
1: yeah, I mean, it's, it's the character creation that really sets a role-playing game apart from just a, a tabletop game that, you know, even a, a complicated tabletop game, um, you know, like Betrayal at the House on Haunted Hill. Um, but imagine if, you know, even a simple board game like Monopoly, um, you know, every player in the game of Monopoly has the s- same goal, to somehow win Monopoly which I don't know is possible. I've never seen it done. <laughs> but to, to, to win the game, and there's nothing that says that the person with the battleship piece has to play the game any different than the person with the race car piece. It's just, whereas what makes it a role-playing game is that um, every character or, or every player in the game, because they are a different character, is going to approach every situation differently um, not only because they have a different skill set, but also because they have different inherent personalities. And a well-designed character, and you know, a, a player who is playing them well, is going to, you know, really show the character's personality in how they approach the the problems that the game, you know, confronts them with. Where um, the easy thing in most Dungeons and Dragons encounters is to well, we're going to fight the goblins, so let's fight them. Um, but is a character who, um, you know, has a lawful good alignment and, um, you know, has has a character background that, you know, where they're essentially a healer and a, you know, kind of wilderness doctor, um, are they going to want to leap right into that fight or are they going to want to try to find other solutions? Because that's what their character personality and their skill set is going to work for. So that's where the kind of the beauty of this game comes into play versus any other game that just happens to feature perhaps dragons or perhaps dungeons.
0: (laughs) Right. So the big question we're going to try is how do you make a character? Not how mechanically, but how from a, you know, flavor and a role play perspective, how do you sort of, I mean, how deep do you go? Right. And. This is something that I've been trying to work on as a player and also as a DM, because a DM has to make a bunch of characters. Now, the level at which, you know, the level of detail with which he makes those characters are varies depending on, you know, the role they're going to have in the campaign. If it's just some guy you're going to put on the street who's going to give you directions, obviously he's not going to go and make a whole backstory for that character, probably. But if it's going to be like the main villain of your campaign or perhaps an NPC non-player character, for those of you who are unfamiliar with that term, means someone played <laughs> not by a player, but by the dungeon master, uh, the computer in a video game, if you will. And perhaps you have a, a party mate that is an NPC that like probably should have a good backstory and a good flesh out, like who this character is. And they get a full character sheet in the whole nine yards, almost as if they were a playing character. And uh, that's really an important distinction to point out. Um, the problem is... There's a couple paradigms you have to work with, and there's, these come from different styles, right? So some people approach Dungeons & Dragons, they want to make a fun character, but they also want to, as they say in the business, min-max their character. In other words, they <laughs> want to <a> power <laughs> game, they want to say, how can I make the strongest character in the situations that I want to be strong in? And the game is balanced in a way that you can't, like you said, like Greg said, you can't generally be good at everything, right? Like, now, if you do use a system where you roll dice for stats, sometimes... You get characters that are really good. I I have a memory of a time when we were playing a campaign and I rolled a character and just for reference, for those unfamiliar, uh, it's usually, you know, your stats are somewhere in the, the teens typically, or sometimes lower than that. But like they say 10 is basically average. Your average human being in the world is usually like between nines and 11s, you know, Greg probably has like a strength of nine and a dex of probably 11s. He's a guitar player. (laughs) <laughs> maybe 12, you know, a constitution of eh, probably 11, you know, you could get on the list. I'm not going to get the mental stats because that can get insulting, but, um, <laughs> but like, and then the, the upper cap is usually characters don't get past like 18, 19, 20, unless they're really going all in on a stat. However, I rolled a character that had his lowest, stat was a 16. Wow. When I started the game. So we called him the wolf, like from uh, Pulp Fiction. But I'm just like, yeah, I can do it. Whatever it is, I can do it. Um, But, you know, we have to always keep in mind the mechanics of the game as we're discussing these things, because let's say you roll poorly and the game is designed to make it so that you can't have a character who sucks because you're supposed to be a hero. You're supposed to be above average. You're supposed to be an adventurer, right? Like playing. We have done commoner campaigns and they're fun. Like, all right, you're just like the farmer and you've got five tens and an 11. So have at it but it's not really fun cuz you're not really you can't really do anything.
1: Right. I mean and and we play these games to enjoy ourselves and to have a little bit of an empowerment fantasy. Um and even if it's not an empowerment fantasy, there's the challenge of thinking through okay, how does a high intelligence, low strength character deal with seven grizzly bears? Like there's a fun challenge there. But if it's just um um how does just a flat, neutral, normal person deal with these things? Well, they don't, and then the game's over.
0: Right. And, the, you know, the big, a big problem here is that, you know, your stats can determine. So people approach different ways. You can come at it from like, I have, you know, I looked up a build online, and I always wanted to try to play a fighter that specialized in this and did that because it's really good, and you make this combo with this feet and this kind of a piece of equipment, and you can do this crazy thing. Cool. And then you maybe fill in a backstory from there. The other direction is the opposite of that. You say, I wanna make a character whose motivations are like this and kind of reminiscent of this character from this book and like, you know, some sort of part of you or empowerment fantasy that you wanna see. And then you sort of build the mechanics out from there. There's two different directions you can go. And they have impacts on one another because, you know, if you get bad stats, certain classes are kind of off limits unless you really wanna suck. Now, you can still suck and you can do that, but. It's always going to be the back of your mind that, like, I'm not the best character I could be. And that weighs heavily on people. Yeah. And there's whole classes that are like, this class isn't that good. Because it still is a game at the end of the day, right? Sure. But a good DM and good players will work together to make the story they want to make. Uh, Unless they happen to be playing, like, there's pre-made that are designed, like, this is hard D&D. This is D&D on hard mode. It is designed to, like, you need to, every character needs to be min-maxed. And you need to play, turns into a board game, essentially, at that point. Not yeah. to keep harping on that point. so the big question for me when it comes to making a character that i struggle with as a player is how do you not play yourself
1: yeah and i think that um i think that to a certain extent you kind of have to because where the venn diagram between role-playing and acting where that overlap is is the understanding that there's going to be a piece of you in it if you're An actor, you have to draw on your own personal experiences in order to generate an emotional response that's appropriate for the scene and the character that you're playing. And when you're playing a role playing game, like you need to have something where you can draw on some sense of, you know, logic and consistency that's gonna make sense for you. A more advanced player can probably play further and further away from their own personality, but you know, like we were talking about earlier, where fifth edition will give you ways to generate these personality traits for you. So you don't have to kind of think through like, okay, who is this person? What's their personality? How did they get that way? Is their personality internally consistent, et cetera, et cetera. Rather, it's just, okay, here, here are the, the high points of their personality so that I just have to, it's more just like a little, logic problem every time you encounter something like, wait, okay, how would this person react? Okay, they they like this, they don't like that, they tend to prefer to do this, okay, I've got it. Um, whereas a more advanced player will be able to kind of do that arithmetic naturally in their head for a character that they invented. But, how do you not just play yourself? And that's, but then again, I mean, to get deep here, um, I think part of the draw of role-playing games where you have to literally pretend to be a different person, um, and oftentimes your DM will make you speak in their voice and do those sorts of things, is you want to learn a little bit about yourself through this exercise, right? Isn't that kind of the... Um, isn't that kind of the dream of do, uh, of of a great DD experience is yeah you get to have a lot of fun fantasy escapism and you know you, you use your imagination and spend time with your friends and you know have the stimulation of problem solving and all those other things but you kind of hope that by stepping outside of yourself and looking at outlandish problems from someone else's eyes you learn something about yourself um you think wow you know i'm I'm a little bit more noble than maybe I thought I was. And, um, you know, huh, you know, these outlandish situations have made it clear to me that, um, you know, my, you know, what my sense of right and wrong really is, or boy, maybe I'm, you know, maybe I don't understand the limits of my own selfishness. Um, Like, I feel like that's kind of part of why we do this sort of thing. So obviously you don't want to just, put a carbon copy of your own personality into um, a beautiful, strong paladin and just run around because that's going to be boring for everyone else around you. And also I feel like maybe that tells you a little too much about yourself (laughs) Um, that you're unwilling to step outside yourself um, even for an hour.
0: Right. I mean, I always say, and I said this in our episode with Roger that I think that Dungeons and Dragons, much like history and many other things is if you treat it in a way, it could be a, a great exercise in empathy, right? In trying to learn about another person, in this case, a person that you've created or that has maybe perhaps even been created partially for you through randomization and things like that. And to get deep, you know, what are the people you encounter every day around you, but some random assignment of different things that we have in our own real world, real world, which, you know, can include profession and ethnicity slash race and religion, all these different things, gender. Come back to that one then. And to work with that level of empathy, you know, trying to really dig in and figure out how all these things layer on top of one another. I mean, I I sort of harp on this a lot for a lot of reasons because to get super deep here, uh, like when people ask you, like, what's your moral code? What's your moral philosophy? Uh, Which I think about a lot because, well, that kind of guy, I'm nerdy and like philosophy, I guess. And, you know, every moral philosophy sort of has flaws, but the biggest one that I sort of not does not one that i've you know read about but more that i think about my own is that empathy is the most important value in our world i'm going to put a flag in the ground right there and say that that real real empathy there's a lot of fake empathy out there it's like all that fake news <laughs> um but like fake empathy i read an article recently about uh, some professor at yale or somewhere put out a book about why empathy is bad but he's talking about like this sort of weird like social media empathy where uh, everyone's identifying with every single crisis in the world. And it sort of almost does the opposite desensitizes to you, but that's, that's fake empathy. Real empathy is always striving to, you know, try and understand and do a better version of, you know, what, what's the golden rule, right? Do unto, do unto others as you wish to be done unto you. That's a bad rule because they aren't you. So you should do unto others as they would wish to be done unto them.
1: Hmm. Sure.
0: Because, you know, us as two white males, you know, middle class waspy backgrounds, you know, we're okay with being treated certain ways because we have right. certain privilege and whatnot that relates to that. Whereas someone else might not be. So that's a dumb rule. I don't like the golden rule where I think if you have true empathy and empathy is one of those things that, uh, and this is why it's fun in a game format because you can practice it because I always say that empathy is asymptotic. It's you, you can keep getting closer, but you can't ever fully be somebody else, Right. You can't fully understand how someone's, at least at this point, maybe in a thousand years, be a good fantasy book or a sci-fi book, I guess, where you can like actually know what it's like to be somebody else. But for now, we can't know what it's like to be somebody else 100%. But we can keep trying. And the, even just the act of trying is enough to make a better person. More philosophy tangent. But this is why I think that character creation is fun and meaningful is because you're trying to and as you make more characters, you know, your first character might be a little flat and then you add another layer and another layer. I always describe it as when you're at the eye doctor and that device that you wear and they, you know, put lenses on that gets increasingly clear. That's what empathy should be. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. That's what D&D is like. So every time you add a little bit more depth to your character uh, and you build depth over as you go. I mean, my first not my first character, but the character that sort of uh, was the character I played a lot in college, Erebus of a Stone is his name and he was very wishy-washy because I didn't know how to play. I didn't really make a strong character and I didn't know, but that sort of then became part of his personality that he really didn't know who he was or where he was going or what he fought for. And eventually that sort of went from like, a, you know, his slowly his alignment changed from chaotic neutral to true neutral to, you know, chaotic good. And like, he sort of became a hero over a long period of time because, you know, he saw a lot of injustice, but he didn't start off just like, the righteous paladin you know i'm gonna do good for good sake right uh so i think that's that's for me a lot of like the, the the meat of character creation and why it's so much so important so much fun
1: and i think that you know you're to your point of kind of playing against type and generating characters who are m- more and more steps removed from who you are as an as an exercise in empathy i think is is important and I think there is a very interesting, um, the randomness that character creation can bring, I think is very interesting. And when a, a DM can, you know, usually a DM will let you kind of have a concept of your character first. And then even though your skills are somewhat randomized, you can kind of assign them in a way that makes sense for the character that you want to play, the character you have envisioned. But there is a way to play where it's entirely randomized which is a lot more like how we all enter the world. Um, for all intents and purposes, we, we enter the world with a random, uh, random mix of stats. And some of them, you know, are probably pretty closely linked to whatever stats our parents had. Smart kids tend to come from smart parents. Now is that nature versus nurture? It's not really relevant for this conversation. Um, but I think there is a very valuable lesson in just encouraging people to go through the thought exercise of the stats you kind of roll up at birth play a big role in how you end up in life. Because in and d gives us something that real life doesn't, which is to choose our path in life and who we want to be and then make our kind of physical attributes and our mental attributes and our personality kind of fit that whereas in the real world that happens more in reverse you know you don't um you know in in utero you don't decide that you want to be an engineer and thus you know put all of your stats into intelligence um you know if, if you have the forethought you know in your younger years you realize you might have a skill for something and decide that that's how you want to direct your career or a fascination with something, um, but for a lot of us, we might decide that we are, um, you know, for, okay, for, to, to, to use the D&D example for myself, um, <laughs> to, and to stretch the analogy as far as it'll go, um, I rolled up stats that were probably ideal for a, um, whatever the d d equivalent of like city planner or, um, uh, um, you know, uh, super obscure constitutional lawyer. Like that's probably the stats I rolled up for, but I decided the class that I wanted was barred. And those were not the stats that I rolled up. And you know, that, creates complications for you further down the road. Whereas in D&D, you decide, I want to be a bard. Okay, what do I need to specialize my stats in? Um, and I think that gives us, in D&D, a lot of freedom to explore these kind of perfect mixes of what your character is cut out for and also what your character wants to do. Um, because when a D&D character kind of enters the world, right, it's not really when they're born It's when the campaign starts. And usually by that point, your D&D character kind of enters the game as an adult who has a personal history that all kind of adds up to where they are today in their personality and in their profession. And their mental and physical stats line up great with the profession that they have chosen, even though, you know, you usually start as like a level one wizard, which means you're like... You've been at it for six weeks, you know, a couple spells. (laughs) It'd be like that guy showing up at the coffee house to play like the two Green Day songs he knows on guitar and not even (laughs) very well. But even so, everything's kind of mapped out to like, this is the career I'm going to, I want to have. And everything lines up to that. Whereas our real personality, personalities are a lot messier. Like there are whole parts of our personal history that have very little to do with where you are today. And yeah, you can talk about how lessons you learned doing this thing when you were a teenager are relevant today, but if you look at your job description, um, you know, when I look at my job description, you know, getting a black belt 15 years ago had nothing to do has nothing to do with where I am today. It's like a skill set. Uh well, let's call it a skill set cuz I I'm I'm old and fat and slow now. But um you know, that skill set has nothing to do with anything today, whereas in D&D, everything adds up to where you are today. Your personal history adds up to where you are today. There's none of these tangents you took as a teenager or, you know, I – if entering the real world and entering the D&D world, right, kind of starting the campaign, like find the equivalent place, starting the campaign is kind of like maybe coming out of college where you've got all your training, you are relatively young, um – you've got some skills that the average person doesn't because you've, you know, gone through four or five, six years of schooling. Um, but how many of us now you're a special case, but the skill set that I walked into the world with out of college, I started the campaign with a whole bunch of skills in broadcasting. And now I do market research for a grocery store. Like it's these mismatches that I think are fascinating and that don't show up in D
0: and D. Um, yeah, I mean, it's same for me. I've always training in history, and I manage a CRM for a university. Um, but I, I think that I've always wanted to play that character in D and D, and I've gotten close. And depending on the system, you know, the rules for what is called multi classing, you know, like I'm gonna get two levels of wizard and then two levels of fighter. Like those exist, and some systems it's easier than other systems, depending on what you're trying to do. Um, it's usually always very suboptimal, which is not different from real life. But, um, you know, it's not. It's like looking back, it's like, oh man, if I would have done this or done that, you know, you always have those turns that you could have taken that would have been a better fit or something along those lines for many different aspects of life. Uh, But I have always wanted to play the the wizard who decides, you know what, screw it. I'm just going to grab a sword and hit things because that seems better Um, and have a more. And I, I always try to approach that with, I always try to approach that a little bit that way. So when you get into just beyond your class, but sort of like what, how you build your character. So in Dungeons and Dragons and Pathfinder, feats are one of the most sort of, feats are sort of just like, there's hundreds or thousands of feats to choose from and you get one, you know, every every, every other level or whatever. And there's sort of ways to help customize your character in a way that goes deeper than the class features that are kind of, akin to all fighters or all wizards you know you can specialize a lot of builds quote unquote are built on feats so my initial uh you know fighter erebus he was like he was like he fought with a halberd and his specialty was tripping people he would trip them because the the way we had it set up was that it was a two-person campaign and my counterpart uh, my best friend he was playing a rogue and the way the mechanics work is that when someone stands up You get what's called an attack of opportunity, which means that uh, they kind of let themselves open. You get an extra attack. So the idea was that I would trip them, he would get behind them, and as they stood up, he was a rogue, and he would attack them and get sneak attack damage. And basically, if someone fell to the ground, they would be dead. And I was really good at tripping because I built my character that way. However, as the campaign went on, and our beloved DM, Roger... Never gave us anything that was trippable, like ghosts <laughs> and things with four legs and stone golems and like, all right, the trip attempt be like a DC 50 difficulty check. And it's like, all right, great. Uh, I'm not going to try that. So I took my character in different directions. I got things to, you know, bypass damage reduction and, you know, but and there's some people will go online and just a one through 20 build set that you plan out. But I sort of like to have my character develop a little bit more in a roleplay way, like the past level worth of experience I've had should make me better at this. And I'm going to take this feat to sort of try and fill that gap. Like I've learned how to do this as opposed to one day. I'm just like, Oh, I know how to do this random thing now. Like try and make it a little more organic, I guess. Um, not that you have to do that, but that's how kind of, I like to play it out sometimes. But there's another problem with how not to play yourself. And I'm not talking about from a personality perspective, but the actual mechanics of how do you play a character? This is particularly important when it comes to mental stats uh physical stats obviously no one has i mean some people do but greg and i don't have strengths higher than 10 probably no offense greg um
1: i don't what is what does that equate to in the real world what is a, a strength stat
0: of 10 probably like an average person maybe yeah, even like an, a slightly above average person because mm, maybe that, i'm a nine yeah i'm probably an eight or a nine because you think most D like commoners probably like work in fields and like or are like blacksmiths and have muscles
1: Uh, I, I, when I go to the gym, I see what real men lift in the weights (laughs) department. And I'm certainly not, if they're a 10, I am certainly not a 10.
0: Right. So, uh, but it gets more complicated when it comes to things like intelligence, right? So let's say your character has a 20 intelligence. You're literally a genius. How do you play a character that's a genius? This comes back to a problem I've had with reading some books recently where they're writing geniuses. Mostly like Orson Scott Card is writing Ender as he's he's one of the smartest kids ever born, but Orson Scott Card is not one of the smartest people ever born. Now you have the luxury of writing a story so you can, you know, have the got the, you know, the God's perspective, if you will, but you're still not that smart. So how do you make decisions and carry things out as someone that smart or similarly that charismatic, I always want to play an 18 charisma character. But when I actually go to role play someone who's got anything charisma, I'm like, you know, I can't do anything that's clever. (laughs) So right,
1: and you can't necessarily role play the charisma piece, but charisma at least can be solved with die rolls. Like you basically say, like, you know, now me as a player, I can't come up with the flowery language that's going to seduce this uh, tavern boy man, tavern man. Uh, I can't come up with it, but my character, we can do a role where we'll do a charisma check and do I succeed in in this? Intelligence is a lot trickier because now there are intelligence checks, you know, where it it might have to do with, you know, solving some kind of physical puzzle in the game uh, where you might have to, you know, pass an intelligence check to do that or to you know, solve a math problem in game or something like that. But a lot of intelligence is, you know, how does your character approach a problem? And if your character sees a solution to that problem, that you as the human player behind them would not be able to see, how does that work? And you work it out with your DM where like the DMs, like, you've got a 20 intelligence, so I'm going to help you out on this. As like, you know, you know, as as the god character, I'm going to help you out and say that, you know, a high intelligence character would know the blah, 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 blah here. So feel free to incorporate that into your decision. Um, but I don't know how else you do it. I mean, it's very easy to, well, easy, it's easier to for a smart human player to play a low intelligence character. You just do dumb stuff. And it's also easy for the DM to check you and like you say, oh, I think my character is going to, you know, try to swing on the chandelier and jump to the other side and grab the bowl and whatever, whatever. And the DM can say like, no, you're too stupid to come up with that plan. I think, you know, that's nope, not going to allow it because you're you're a dummy. Um, but yeah, how do you have any experience of how a, you know, how you can have a non-genius character player? Uh, make decisions like a genius level character?
0: Yeah, so you know, for both Intelligence and Charisma, because for when I first started playing, and I've had, you know, play with different DMs and everyone handles it differently and I think for a long time when we first started playing, even for Charisma-based checks, it was like you know, you're talking to, I don't know, we ended up talking to a lot of dragons for some reason and we like, <laughs> alright, you know, Mr. Dragon, blah blah blah, here's why you shouldn't kill us and give us your treasure. And if you didn't make a compelling argument, the DM be like, that's not compelling. He burns you alive. Okay. Sometimes you make a charisma check and it helps, but I think that there was sort of a combination of like what you came up with yourself and also kind of like your stat, making it seem, making making it a more of an impression or something like that. Similarly for intelligence, you know, there would, there'd be some intelligence more at the skill based checks. Like I'm going to roll a history check and you, you know, blah, blah, blah. But when it came to solving, you know, Puzzles or riddles, which, you know, a lot of DMs are big fans of putting in things like, you know, riddles or little logic puzzles of how you, you know, get past the door. And I understand from a DM's perspective being like, well, I put a lot of work into making this riddle up. I don't <laughs> want to just give them the answer because the guy is smart. I, I want them as players to try and figure it out. Uh, but over time, it did become a we did. I think the DMs and us as a group matured. And like you said, it's sort of like the DM would say okay, here's the riddle, you know, or he gives like a hint, right? Like, yeah, you know, oh, you know, it has something to do with this. And it's like, oh, okay, yeah, like, because your character's smart, I'll give you that. And you try and sort of walk a line. It's tough. Even with something like wisdom, the big thing is like memory is a big problem because like, big surprise, sometimes players aren't the best note takers and something from a campaign we played like four months ago might be really important, like some detail about who is married to who or who did something or their name even. And, I think it's the DM's job to provide those things for the, character, for the player uh, because the character wouldn't forget because they have high wisdom, right? Right,
1: or the reverse might be true, whereas if I took that note as the, as the player but my character wouldn't remember it, the DM kind of has to declare that evidence inadmissible, right? Like, right. sorry, you can't, um, you know, your, your character would not have recalled that detail
0: right and that gets into what we call metagaming right where you as a player are thinking as a player not as a character in the world where you're like oh let's try and figure out like like does it have damage reduction it's like that's not a thing people say like you know what right. I mean like you can't talk as if you're a character in the world you have to act or, or talk as you're a player in the world you have to act as if you're a character and metagaming is something that is some people are less strict about it but it's for me if we're playing D&D it's crucial that metagaming is not is not allowed is kept to a bare minimum i mean it's still a game at the end of the day but you know and there's sometimes you have to kind of fudge some things like i've had campaigns start where people make characters and it's like the hook doesn't pull their character in i had a campaign with the guys it's like well i wouldn't want to go with this adventuring crew i'm like well if you want to play you got to go with us like
1: (laughs) so tell tell the rest of us what a hook is in this scenario
0: a hook is like so how do you get the, the biggest i think the hardest part for a lot of uh new groups getting started especially if you're making a homebrew campaign as opposed to a pre-made campaign the difference being pre-mades are from companies that are books that are someone like Greg would sit down and write a whole convoluted story and all these rules and dungeons and things and you don't come and buy it and it's supposed to be well balanced fun adventure where a homebrew would be something that I start doing for myself and just play with my friends right uh, um, the hook is how the game is started right uh, You're going to be doing an adventure, you know, to go rescue a princess from whatever or to solve a mystery about this or go investigate a treasure island or something like that. Um, And usually you should try and work the DM and the group should work together to try and come up with a hook that fits what the DM wants to do for a campaign, but also that they want to make interesting characters for. Um, But sometimes someone makes a character and when you get down to actually play, you know the kind of thing that usually happens is like oh you all meet up in the tavern especially if like you're not in an already existing adventuring group like how did you get together how do you know each right. other why are you in the same place at the same time and sometimes people can be a little and be like well my character doesn't drink so i'm not going to the tavern it's like dude you have to go to the tavern how house always <laughs> starts like come on can you just do it or like oh well, my, my, my character's a pacifist i don't fight things it's like well it's kind of i mean that can get interesting at points and there's fun role play perspective there but it's also like Yeah, you're playing Dungeons and Dragons like (laughs) it's a big part of the game. So you have to work as it is collaborative at that point You have to make sure everyone's on the same page when you're going in Um, I think that if those things if those type of divergences happen Organically throughout the campaign. That's okay, right? If you have a character who one day wakes up and realizes like I don't want to fight things anymore Then you know depending on the set- setting and the context and the group, perhaps you can make that work. And that's an interesting dilemma, right?
1: Well, in a good a good DM is gonna try to present situations that are gonna encourage your, that are gonna challenge your characters and make them grow because you know, that again, that's part of, I think, one of the reasons we play this is to, and it's why we watch movies and read books, is because we want to see characters change and grow. It's a natural human thing. So, a good DM is going to, you know, rather than just give you a fun sandbox to play in, they're going to look at the personalities and the experiences that your character brings up, and then they're going to try to probably give your character challenging moments and force your character to grow and change. And I think that that presents an interesting question to me because we're talking about character creation, which at first seems like a kind of a, you know, it is one thing you do. It's one, it's a discrete process, right? Like it, it in a video game, it's a menu that you click through and then you're done with character creation. But I don't know that character creation in the Dungeons and Dragons sense is as much a discrete task as much as it is that is the whole game, that from the minute your character first enters the world, the first campaign, to at whatever point you retire that character, like that's the whole character creation process, or at least that's the way the game should be as opposed to maybe more of a video game type experience where uh, I'm going to spec my guy as a melee fighter and by the end of it he's going to have giant flaming fists and the coolest melee armor and then I'm going to go back to New Game Plus and then I'm going to run a a archer character and, you know, unlock that skill tree. Whereas I feel like y- the act of playing Dungeons & Dragons is a is an act of constant character creation.
0: I would agree. Uh, I think that especially if you're playing with a good group and a good character and, and, you know, I think that takes a level of like maturity and stuff for, you know, for a, a player, because sometimes you're just a new player is just still grasping the rules and just trying to keep up with, you know, that kind of thing. But it should be a constant and characters should look different after a time. Um, our good dm roger he does a thing for example where once your character hits a certain point of maturity he says you no longer have an alignment because you know your character so well and that character is so fully actualized so self-realized that you don't have to abide by alignment rules because they have their own code of morality that you know is unique and just like in the real world right we don't walk around saying hello i'm awful good good morning like you know (laughs) i wish we did it'd be awesome but, um,
1: and he, and he looks at that also from, I would imagine, I don't want to put words in his mouth, um, not only a level of maturity of the character, but also of you as a player, that he can trust you as a player to make really make decisions from the point of view of the character as opposed to maybe what you as a player would do or what you as a player thinks will be the most funny or cool thing to happen.
0: Right. And then also that because especially, you know, in a setting where his world is a static, you know, thing that exists and characters can cross over and, you know, much like our ever popular cinematic universes are becoming, you know, that's what he has for his worlds that, you know, I've had campaigns where I sit down with across from a guy where he's been playing his character for 10 years and, you know, he has a very distinct idea of what that character, who that character is, what they will do in every situation and it's not always, you know, uh, just fudge it to get through the campaign. It's like, no, this is this is where he, this is where this character puts his foot down. And that's a fun and that matters to him, because if someone just does something and then abruptly changes course, that wrecks his world a little bit. He's protective of that, obviously. So and should be. Um, so I think that's like a, a major factor as well. That's just like the static nature of some homebrew settings of continued building on growing universes and things. Plus, I think that, to your point, you know, like, it's also just to get – it's reflective of the real world, right? Like, we are constantly evaluating ourselves and hopefully growing and changing. Um,
1: (laughs) Yeah, and, I mean, it's interesting that we're talking about this idea of, you know, constant creation and re of of our character. We're talking about this in January when – Many of us are either, you know, we are trying to boost our stats because we, uh, you know, maybe got a little, uh, things got away from us there at the end of the year and it's time to, you know, get our physical stats back in line. But you see a lot of other kind of self-improvement stuff going around about that might not just be physical, but also how do we be just become better people? We put a lot of focus on it in January just because, you know, I think that there's, probably a bunch of factors there's obviously cultural factors that you know put a lot of pressure on us to engage in self-improvement projects but also it might be go a little deeper than that and just you know human beings tend to get a little bored and stir crazy in the winter time and need a project and you can't go work on the lawn and <laughs> you can't really do much but just maybe more personal things um But, so we're talking about this in January when we're all kind of working on improving our characters, but I think that there are other, just beyond kind of self-improvement projects, I think that there, we go through these kind of character creation moments, um, almost like leveling up, I guess, because it kind of happens all at once. A lot of times when, maybe you start a new job, go to a new school, move to a new town... He says, having just started a new job in a new town where you suddenly have an opportunity to kind of rejigger your personal story a little bit when you meet new people. What are the elements of my, you know, because you always meet those people. And especially, you know, in a professional scenario, there's always that, you know, tell us a little bit about yourself. You know, what are the things I'm going to choose to tell people? Um, You know, am I going to say, oh, I'm, you know, Greg and I've got a wife and a daughter and, uh, you know, and a dog and a podcast or am i going to say you know i'm greg i've got a wife and a daughter and you know like hey anybody here active in the baltimore punk scene because maybe we recognize each other and like that's the like you know which of these elements do i choose to, to to highlight and then truthfully you have to live up to those things right like oh this is i'm setting myself up with this group as the comic book guy all right that's gonna be me from now on um but you're engaging in that kind of character creation. There are, you know, what am I gonna highlight? What am I gonna downplay? Um, how am I gonna use this clean slate to my advantage? Um, but I think that that, you know, to my earlier point of many of us being a hodgepodge, you know, you, I, I take periods of my life and things I've done and they don't all necessarily, they don't plot a clear line towards me being a wizard the way it does in in Dungeons and Dragons. Um, but it does give us an opportunity to kind of redefine ourselves, at least how we want other people to look at us um, at these various points in our life. But even so, I think we're constantly, even in long-term relationships, like, you know, as an adult, you know, and you know when you you know you're getting to that point where you see your 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 parents maybe only a few times a year at holidays or other events, and you know, you think, I think I'm going to say the F word in front of my parents this time. (laughs) See how that changes things. Um, you know, you were constantly trying to change the way we look to other people. And, and part of that is kind of cynical and, you know, Oh, if I want to be taken seriously by this bunch, I need to lean into that. And that will be advantageous to me in, you know, whatever scenario. Um, but some of it all is also like, how do we want that to, you know, by setting up that self, that image and other people, you know, if I if I want people here to think of me as, you know, oh, you know, Greg used to be in a band and oh, we must be artistic and kind of blah, blah, blah. Like, is that because I want to emphasize that part of my personality because I want to reconnect with that or commit to that more than I am today? It's like, you know. You say at the Getting to Know You meeting, I'm Greg and I really like to go to the gym. And you're like, well, great. Now I've committed to going to the gym six days a week. But <laughs> part of you wanted to do that, right? So we're constantly, I think, in the real world, cobbling together all of these elements of our personality to be this – who we want to be, <laughs> the idealized version of ourselves. And especially, I mean, even outside of maybe – um social situations like just think about how you set yourself up when you're like interviewing for a new job and you basically we go through that we all go through this exercise of like how can i make my resume how can i explain my resume in such a way that makes me look like a candidate for this job how can i you know cobble together this weird work history and talk about yeah i'm i'm an ideal person for this um it's just about you know we're constantly working through these things and redefining ourselves.
0: Right, and that's why I think that much like the real world, I'd say, uh, and this is sort of like a advice for any people who are new to role-playing games or interested in playing them, I think the beginning is the hardest. You know, like getting, when you first come out of college, is probably some of the hardest time in your life and you're trying to like find a job that can support your rent and, you know, not make you kill yourself and all these different things. <laughs> and the same thing in D&D is that the hardest time you'll have with your character is probably the hardest from a sort of like a how you're grappling with who this character is and whatever is when you is when you start because you're trying to find a, a voice sometimes you know literally but also you know what how does this character think and one thing I've started to do that um, has really helped me I'm not saying this is was work for everybody is that you know typically when you write a backstory you know, you might, it's usually written in a lot of people do like, and there's nothing wrong with this. Everyone's a little different. Um, and I did it for a long time too. It was like, you know, you write So-and-so comes from this land and they grew up with this and then they did this. And then, you know, they kind of did this and they feel like that they, they think this and you just, you describe them from like a third person kind of perspective. And what I started doing is I've basically started to write like scenes from a book about this person's life, like critical scenes, because it helps me, as the kind of person I am, who's not super creative all the time, but likes to play this creative game. Um, (laughs) It helps me find like a rhythm for their, how they talk and the way they think and write some, actually write out the sentences they would say to write out the thoughts they would have in their head. Uh, Oftentimes I'll make them first person, maybe because that's how you should be thinking in the mind of when you're playing the campaign. So I would say that, you know, over time you start to develop things, you get a history and you can look back and by artificially creating a history at first and then playing that character can be can be challenging it's a i think it's an uphill battle at first for a lot of people i want to bring up something else greg Mm -hmm. if you're ready to move on uh yeah sure what about problematic characters (laughs) tell me about
1: what do you have in mind what if you want to play a bad guy well i do (laughs) i do want to play a bad guy (laughs) Um, of course and
0: i i dm a campaign we haven't played in a little while but a group of pirates and they're like not like Jack Sparrow pirates like flaying people and like ripping their tongues out on a regular basis. Uh, And they're they're, all their alignments are some form of evil. And is there anything, you know, when you're, you know, this is all fantasy land. No one's getting hurt. Right. But is there anything and like, where's the line, right? Like, is there anything to to be concerned about there from sort of like a responsible or social awareness, that (laughs) kind of stuff, uh, that kind of thing?
1: Well, I think this is a question for, you know, the DM and the rest of the play group. If you've got a person in your midst who is playing despicable characters who do despicable things, I think it's up to you to get a vibe of like, is this person getting off on this or is this just a, this is an interesting way to explore, like, you know, how does a person who has no regard for other, the safety of people around them, how do they make decisions? And... You know, what is it like to inhabit their shoes? Like, that's one way to look at it versus somebody who's indulging murder fantasies. Um, And I would hope that if there's someone like that in your midst that you would um, help them get the help they need. Um, I'm personally intrigued with the idea of playing evil characters Um, because I think that, especially in a fantasy world, Um, I think just exploring the psychology of evil people and how they interact with the world around them, how they're, you know, how they're motivated, how they deal with scenarios, I think is a, a useful exercise for us to try and understand evil in the world around us. Um, I think there's interesting questions to be asked because, so as a player, I would imagine, unless I have a very, very, very good DM who's very, very good at making me really connect with the NPCs around me, um, it is emotionally easy for me to murder everyone because I know that they're not real people, right? They are just imaginary constructs. Just Just like like in a video game. Exactly. Um, It becomes easy to do. And there's a connection there with, I know I'm going to get the actual pathology wrong here, but um, being a sociopath, because you are incapable of seeing other humans, other human beings as real people, they have as much a real person to a social sociopath has as much value and weight as an NPC in an RPG. So it's probably an easy way to examine that psychology. But then you have to step outside yourself one more time and imagine like, okay, It's very easy for me as a player to be entirely callous in this game world. Um, But what, you know, what would it be like to be this callous in the real world? And what does that teach me about some of the, you know, some of the real deal monsters in our world and how we might want to deal with them as a, as a society? I don't know.
0: It is interesting. We always used to joke around and, and we still do about, uh, the people around us, like who are who are player characters and who are NPCs, like <laughs> oh yeah, man, no, you're a PC, and like you're definitely a PC, but like that person over there, like, might be an NPC. uh, Probably uh, scary logic down with, in yeah, the context you just said. Yeah, but- <laughs> that that sounds
1: a lot like sounds a lot like a budding sociopath. Uh,
0: no, it's all it's all in in candor, but or in, in kidding this, but um, that is interesting to think about it from that perspective. I do think that, um, also interestingly enough, D and D is very popular in prisons apparently. Uh, but
1: <laughs> yes, actually, um, it is, it's becoming very popular as a, um, uh, as a therapy tool and a rehabilitation tool in prisons. Um, because in many ways it, um, it helps inmates, um, to, uh, who might struggle with, you know, kind of seeing their place in a group. And understanding how to work, you know, work within a group of other people, you know, teamwork, some of these kind of basic social skills that the lack of which has, you know, sent a lot of these folks down the path that ended them up in prison, um, teaches a lot of empathy, um, teaches and, you know, teaches problem solving skills. Another reason that, you know, a lot of folks end up in prison is because they either lack the impulse control and or problem solving skills to, you know, not try to solve their Problems with violence or with you know with vandalism or crime or destruction, and you know these are tools that help. Um, it's also a very popular, um, just general therapy tool, um, even outside of the criminal justice um, setting. Um, for a lot of the same reasons, it can be very helpful for folks who are suffering from uh, mental illness, especially young people who are struggling with mental illness um, in. It's, you know, kind of using it in a group therapy environment. Um, actually, Karen's cousin, um, who's a, um, who works in some of these, you know, at-risk youth communities, he uses Dungeons and Dragons in his practice with um, with young kids uh, to, to great, great success.
0: That's great to hear. You know, interesting. I wonder, and I'm going to just get out in front of this one. I'm not one of those like, you know, video games make people into sociopaths, but like in a world where. We're starting to really, you know, engage critically with some of the ways we deal with video games and movies and um, very sort of passive forms of entertainment and just passive forms of social interaction via social media and what you're seeing on the news and just the access to everything you see online. I wonder if things like role playing games and also just reading, I think reading is a good way to not only help people who have issues of any sort. As we just, as you just uh, outlined some examples of, but also go the other way, help teach people who don't have issues to have empathy for people who do like, it'd be interesting to play a Dungeons and Dragons character, or even just, I mean, there's tons of role playing games that aren't set with wizards and dwarves. Like you can do this in a, maybe a more realistic setting. If that's a hurdle for people, sometimes people are just like, I don't, what's a fucking dwarf. I don't care what that is, but where you could say, okay, like your character who suffers from, you know, you have, you're on, you're in some setting or whatever, but you also suffer from depression. And the DM will say, you feel this and it prevents you from doing why. How are you gonna deal with it? And moving on, you know, doing kind of going from there.
1: So they're actually um, what you're describing, there's a video game called Darkest Dungeon that I haven't played, so I'm I'm, you know, only speaking about what I've read. But it is kind of a simplistic kind of a throwback to like maybe computer RPGs from the nineties, where it was maybe a lot more kind of text and stat-based, but it's a dungeon-crawling RPG with a party, but um, almost the whole point is the mental toll it takes on the characters of going into these, you know, demon-haunted dungeons and they will acquire things like, like you say, like depression or anxiety or, and these will all kind of incur different effects on the characters and they will start to turn on each other or um you know be unable to kind of do their job in the in the dungeon. Um and I think there are actually a lot of role-playing systems of the the Lovecraft system. The is it Ar- Arkham?
0: Yeah Arkham Horror and Arkham Horror deals with, with
1: it. Uh deals with these where you have a sanity stat that um goes down as you encounter <laughs> uh these things. But yeah, I think that, you know, if you look at Dungeons and Dragons as, you know, a kind of Alternate personality simulator um, There's a lot of opportunities there to explore experiences that are different than your own um, And explore even states of mind that are different than your own, uh, you know varying levels of difficulty um, One area that and maybe this falls on the DM, but I think that role-playing games could really Open things up in the future in a way that I think our culture needs is is an exploration of privilege and you know to to be a minority in a you know racist or supremacist society. And I think that you know a, a lot of you know kind of RPG worlds or you know lore tries to get at this a little bit but I think it's at a very superficial way and I think that you know over the last you know 5 10 years in America as we've done a better job of surfacing the firsthand experiences of discrimination of, you know, uh, of the African-American community of women right now in the in the Me Too movement and, you know, of all kinds of folks who don't look like me. Um, I think there's an opportunity for us to bring a level of examination of those sorts of factors that goes beyond something like well elves and dwarves sure do hate each other. Um, or people sure don't trust orcs, half orcs in this society and show something of like the cumulative effects of these things. Like, what if there was a, what if you had a stat that went down a little bit every time you suffered some kind of microaggression in the, in the game world? And certain characters and races just didn't have that handicap. Or if, I mean, this is, (laughs) it's kind of tough to make it, make it work when you have to like, Um, you know, when you're just, you know, picking gold off of goblins, but what if female characters just, they only got three quarters of what male characters got. And they're just, that's just the way it worked in terms of like experience points and gold. Um, and, you know, kind of forcing folks to, especially folks like me, you know, privileged people who've never really had a firsthand experience of these things, teaching us to empathize a little bit with folks who aren't as privileged. Um, I think there's a lot of opportunity there to dig into that and um, uh, I'd like to see more game worlds and, and even just campaigns built around those ideas of um, privilege and sy- systematic oppression um, that goes a little bit, yeah, like I say, a little bit beyond what we expect from kind of the typical tropey fantasy environment.
0: Yeah, I could definitely see that and you know, there's some struggles there because, I mean, I, I remember in it's something that I think that is an area that the game could mature in a little bit. Uh, because, for example, I started a campaign with a new group maybe about a year ago. We sort of fell off, you know, the horse as many campaign groups do for, you know, young or late 20-somethings who are very busy. But um, when they were first starting... You know, they, they came across different creatures and things. And these guys are all, you know, some of them had played Skyrim or whatever, but that's, that was, this is their first time in a role playing game. Uh, they'd be like, all right, well, you know, like here's, you come across a group of kobolds, you know, for those who don't, know, they're like little dragon, gnome, goblin kind of things. And they're usually bad guys, right? And like the monster man- manual says, kobolds are lawful evil. And it's like, and then and they're like, and the one, you know, especially the one character was like, well, are they all evil? And I was just like, I don't know, like maybe (laughs) like as a DM, I was kind of like, I never really asked that question because, and we, you know, we play, I played a kobold character. So like, I know the answer is no, they're not all evil, but like, and how do you tell and you know, how do you handle the situations? And I think that I like pushing my groups to do that more to engage like a, because it helps turn off like murder hobo mode, which some people can fall into uh, and also giving like real consequences decisions they make along those lines just even the one player you know who was really into it and is now dming his own campaigns and kind of clicked for him but when he first started he was like he was just playing it like it was skyrim he's like they come across some guy and he's like all right i'm gonna try and sneak around and rob his house and i'm like why why are you gonna do that and he's like well i want his stuff i want to see if he's got anything good i'm like okay like he sees you
1: and like he's gonna
0: like the rest of the group is also like now distrustful of you and like, aren't going to help you. And the group literally watched him almost die because they're like, why did he do that? I'm like, I don't know. You know, it's like, it's not trying to teach that. Like your actions have consequences that affect other people and other NPCs and things. So all that fits together. And there's probably some areas that they would need to DM. would need to, you know, make sure that players knew the kind of game they're playing and fudge some of those rules that like all goblins are evil kind of thing. Uh, but i think there's definitely tons of examples of that not being the case i mean sure a lot of a lot of you know pre now are becoming more complex in those ways i'd say
1: but even you say okay so goblins are they tend to be evil okay but if we map the you know like we were talking about like the evil axis is really more of just the self-interest axis and somebody who's all the way on the end of self-interest um and that's goblins but are all goblins terribly self-interested because they all live in the dark under mountains wearing loincloths. They have nothing. Of course, they're all looking out for themselves.
0: Right.
1: And, um, would goblins maybe be less self-interested if, you know, they had clean water to drink (laughs) and, and, you know, weren't, you know, um, forced to live in the wilderness. um, constantly beset by
0: adventurers looking for trinkets i mean <laughs> i'm doing it greg i'm doing the the goblin kingdom that was raised up by a, like a neighboring you know normal race kingdom and provided with you know basic necessities and there's like i imagine little little goblin guards and like paladin equipment at the front gate with like laws and little taverns and nice little goblin society <laughs> <laughs> yeah well i mean
1: but these are these are interesting questions and i think that it's, it's, you know, d being as flexible a system as it is, a DM can certainly write a campaign that explores these ideas and challenges our preconceived notions. I think what I would, again, you know, just thinking about, like, where could this go in the future? Like, how do we codify those things into the structure and the systems of the game itself? Um, for example, in the um, in the video game space, there is... Um, a game called Ark, I think it is. It's one of these weird Steam like survival yep. open world sims. Yep. But essentially, they made it so that when you create a character, and it's a permadeath game, so when you die, you have to create a new character. When you create a character, your race and gender are randomly assigned, and people lost their minds for one. And, but these things had no effect on the, on, On the gameplay, it's just your character model, Um, but something like that in a D and D world where it's like, nope, you get what you get. Um, Or even the latest South Park RPG made a big kerfuffle, the uh, video game, um, because in the in previews they showed that like when you're creating your character in their little character creator, um, as you as you slide the uh, skin tone selector from light to dark, a, a a little window pops up on screen that says, as you, you know, as you go darker, the game is going to get harder. Um, which everyone was like, holy shit, that's brilliant. And, um, like what a great bit of social commentary. And then as it turns out, that's not actually true. It's just a joke they put in. It doesn't, the game doesn't actually change, but, um, I just think it, it, it's an opportunity to explore the lived experience of, you know, ending up in a world that doesn't value you in the way it values other people just because of the the way the dice rolled. Um, and I mean, that, that, you know, skates the line of like the character I want to play versus the character the game wants me to play. And again, you know, we jump into these games as a way to explore versions of ourselves that maybe we want to be, um, as opposed to, you know... And I can also imagine if you are the kind of person who uh, is very much who deals with being the victim of syst- systematic oppression all day, the last thing you want to do when you jump into your d campaign is get more of that. Um, but again, I think, you know, if as an empathy building tool, I would love to see something there.
0: Yeah, I think that's a really, a really good idea. And I think that, um, you know, I think it's all about, right? Like you said, skating that line of balance. Like you do a campaign like that, and you do a campaign where you're murder hobos, right? Like whatever you <laughs> want to do, like it's fine. And um but I do think that it is a space that allows because the the challenges and to get, you know, to go full circle to our care you know, to talk about character creation is that it makes you view situations from different perspectives, right? That's the core of empathy, but to make decisions and to solve problems as with a different lens, right? So you have to first figure out what you think about it, you as the the player, Greg or Andrew. And then you have to figure out, okay, now that I figured out what I think about it, now I have to figure out what my this character I created would think about it given these, you know, XYZ details about their background and who they are and what they do. So, I mean, I remember one of the hardest decisions we ever made in Dungeons and Dragons was it was sort of what, the climax of our our campaign in college and the realm we were in was a pretty shitty place. It was called the realm of horror. Uh, actually, at this point, it's called the realm of death because a <laughs> necromancer had basically <laughs> taken, over, taken over most of the world. There's still thousands and thousands of people left. And, but there was a risk that this necromancer could break out of this realm and go infect the other realms with all the power he had gained in this realm. And, the two, you know, our two characters and the NPC character that the DM was playing, was, who is who is evil. He's that character of Danzig, who is who's a cannibal and despicable human, you know, human being. Uh, actually, he was a vampire s- at this point.
1: Saying that Glenn Danzig <laughs> is a despicable human being. No,
0: it's just it's it's a uh, just the same name. Although I always <laughs> like to imagine him looking like Glenn Danzig in my head.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, come on.
0: <laughs> um, but we have basically. Uh, Going to the center of the center of the earth of the realm and found the ancient dragon that was chained up. And he said, we can either run away and go try and just, you know, survive and help defend the remaining people on this earth. Or we can let this dragon free and it will kill everybody, but also kill the bad guy. And we sat there for like an hour, you know, with the game on pause, like agonizing (laughs) over what to do with this decision. Uh, and, of course, we ended up deciding to let the dragon free and kill everybody, but save the broader multiverse, if you will. Uh, but that's the kind of thing that, you know, first we had to decide, like, God, what do Keith and Andrew think about this? And then decide, all right, well, what would our characters think about that? And that's obviously a very fantasy, you know, bullshit kind of thing to decide. But if you apply that logic to every single decision you make in the game, every interaction you have with a character, if you treat everything as if it was, quote unquote, a real interaction... Then you can really explore some options, explore yourself and explore uh, other people. So now you just want to make characters all day?
1: <laughs> We're always making characters, man. It's true. Doing it right
0: now. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I, I think that I would just encourage people that uh, are interested, let's like last time, to give it a go. Even if you uh, don't even have a campaign, just like make a character.
1: Yeah, and there are tools online. Um the one that comes to mind for me is D&D Beyond, which essentially is kind of an online resource for proper D&D and they have a it's free, you don't have to pay for it. Um they have a character creation tool which will walk you through all the steps of just, you know, rolling up a character and choosing stats and picking a background and all of that and even if you have no intention of actually playing Dungeons and Dragons like just going through that exercise um and just seeing the way that a game like this kind of tries to simulate the real world um is fascinating um and um just thinking about all the options and just the way it triggers your imagination and say like okay well you know okay so I'm I, I figured this guy out and he's a you know a uh, elf rogue and you know I figured out all of you know you know, kind of the nuts and bolts that Oh, and now it wants me to pick a background. And I was like, huh, noble. All right. Yeah, that sounds interesting. But then you think, well, well, how does a noble become a rogue? That's like a thief. What's that story? And all of a sudden you found yourself, you've written this backstory in your head just by the prompts that the game gave you of just kind of exploring different avenues. And, um, it's a great exercise. It's, I think it's like D and D beyond, or just Google it. You'll find it. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's a free thing. And, um, does all the math and the hard part for you. Um, it even has a name generator to help you come up with stupid fantasy names.
0: Oftentimes, you know, the hardest part. I always love that gagging the community in the episodes. Like, I'm not good at names. <laughs> Seems Kyle, I don't know. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so I think that about wraps it up for our character creation episode.
0: Yeah, hopefully we'll do another. Uh, we'll double and do another sort of aspect. I mean, this, this is a big one, but maybe we'll do another aspect of Dungeons and Dragons, some other, or role-playing games, some other times. There's a lot to talk about.
1: Yeah, I think um, I think it's an incredibly interesting thing and something that, um, you know, was kind of truly new to the world when uh, when Gary and those guys invented it. Um, this kind of structured make-believe, um, you know, one of those things that just kind of appeared. So it's a very fascinating idea, uh, and there's a lot of interesting things to, to look at.
0: And it's a great time for it because... You know i mean there's the initial oh my god that game's for nerds which is still true but there's they're followed up with like the associations with like satanism and the occult and you know many people's family yeah exactly many people's family like you know uh they would they forbade their kids from playing dungeon dragons because it's how you connect with the devil and whatever and that's obviously no longer the case and there's a lot of different areas that have shown a lot of interest in this. I mean, D&D podcasts are incredibly popular. Uh, there's, you know, the Dan Harmon show, Harmon Quest, is popular. Actors are, you know, a lot of them have played Dungeons & Dragons in the past because obviously there's a lot of, you know, those Venn diagrams of acting and role-playing are, are, are pretty tight. But word on the street is that currently, like, actors are getting together on their off time and, like, playing Dungeons & Dragons together. which I'm sure would just be a blast to watch because they can <laughs> really actually act Uh, I'm not blessed with the ability to do uh, particularly good accents. It usually ends up being a mix of all of them. So I don't usually do them. (laughs) Whereas my friends do have like this thick and oh, they can just like turn it on. And it's like, it really helps because at a table, having a good character voice versus your own voice helps to delineate who's talking and what's going on. And it's hard for some people to do it first, but I basically just do gruff or high or, you know, Maybe slightly more clipped. But if you said like, Oh, my character's got British accent. I'm like, I'm not going to embarrass myself. In i can just not. Can, can you do access, Greg?
1: Um, hmm. Uh, you know, uh, I, it's, it, it's one of those things where like you figure out how to do like a, a Scottish accent to say like one sentence. But then like, as I deviate from that, like those like six words, I know how to say it all just sorts of blends together into, like that kind of like vaguely Australian Irish thing that white Americans do when they need to sound like they're <laughs> from somewhere else.
0: Very fair. Very fair. That's about what I was just thinking as well. So, <laughs> uh, But yeah, my point is that like, you know, you will no longer be ostracized from society for playing this game. as yeah. many people have come to realize its benefits and the fun of it. And uh, yeah. Well, and
1: and just that whole, I mean the whole jocks versus nerds, And like acceptable pastimes versus unacceptable pastimes like that's dead. That was a thing in the eighties and nineties. And it was really an offshoot of, you know, kind of sixties male culture of, you know, post-military, like these are the things that, that, you know, normal people do. And then there's everything else. And we have gotten over that. I think, you know, all these things that used to just be for nerds, star Wars is the biggest movie in the world. And truthfully, (laughs) It was when it was out too, even though we all tried to, there was this thing in culturally about how Star Wars was for nerds and well, obsessing about Star Wars was for nerds, but like that movie didn't become the juggernaut that it was on the back of like six dudes in their basement and video games didn't become, you know, one of the largest entertainment industries in the world, you know, if only one kid in your neighborhood had an Atari in the basement, like everybody was doing this. It's just now it's out in the open. And I think Dungeons and Dragons has, you know, the stigma is gone. And I don't think anybody who's listening to this cares about the stigma or should care about the stigma. But from a more practical perspective, and why now is a great time to get involved is that, you know, they're, you know, Wizards of the Coast and by extension Hasbro is putting a lot of money into this, which means that the quality of the materials has gone up and there's a lot of great, um, support tools out there. Um, some of them developed by, uh, you know, just fans and players like roll 20. That is a online tool set that lets you play the entire game remotely over, you know, over voice chat or text chat, but all the rules are built in and the die rolls are built in. And, you know, the support system is there in a way that it wasn't before where you had to like find these people to play with and then find a basement to play in and feel embarrassed about it. And the stuff you had was all very crappy looking and feeling and poorly put together. Um, but now it's just, it's a, it's a, it's a great time to get involved and not only are there, you know, the tools to play with, but also just, you know, it's so easy with the internet now to go online and find ideas and find people to play with and all those things. Um, that just weren't there 10, 15, 20 years ago. Um, So yeah, I think now's a great time to start experimenting with uh, D&D or whatever weird role-playing system you prefer. Like, I don't know, if you're some kind of libertarian whack job and want to play Shadowrun, you can play Shadowrun, Rand Paul.
0: I don't know what Shadowrun is. Explain this to me.
1: Shadowrun is um, uh, kind of the... I'm going to get in trouble if I say original, but one of the, it's kind of the, the big cyberpunk uh, RPG system. I see. And thus inherited all of cyberpunk's weird libertarianism.
0: Gotcha. Um, I will say that having the internet is just, it's helpful. It's so helpful. at so many levels, you know, finding people to play with, like Greg said, but like finding ideas for characters, finding, just being able to navigate the rules a lot easier. I mean, I cannot tell you, even though obviously we had the internet, we were in college, but some of the infrastructure just hadn't hadn't been built up yet enough and we just were using books for the most part and like just us just like well i remember reading in this one of these 40 books we had that like i could do this and then just like arguing for six hours about some obscure rule like that's just like a google search away now for the most part and you know every book has errata that are put out is i say that word errata like uh
1: yeah sure
0: i don't know you know like with like corrections to the books and like special, you know like Things that the companies have been like, oh, actually, in this case, it means that, and you know, all these things that make playing and like maps that you can just like people publish maps or things that like your weaknesses. Like, I'm not the best. Like, name, you know, so names aren't my strong suits, so I'll use a name generator. Or sometimes, like, I'm not the best at drawing battle maps. I can do pretty good like world maps and things, but like the actual like tactical interesting maps, like there's so many resources out there now and so at your fingertips. So. Just do it and then tell us about it. I want to I wanna hear everyone's D&D stories. I can sit around and tell D&D stories all night, man.
1: <laughs> well, I think you're going to have to find another night to tell D&D stories. Because this is we true. Have to, we have to wrap up this podcast. We do. All right, guy. Well, um, I think that wraps it up for us. I think I said that already. Well, anyway. Maybe about uh, 20
0: minutes ago. <laughs>
1: all right, buddy. Well, have a good week and I will see you soon. Talk to you later.